Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Meet the next generation of podcast stars with SiriusXM's Listen Next program, presented by State Farm. As part of their mission to help voices be heard, State Farm teamed up with SiriusXM to uplift diverse and emerging creators. Tune in to Stars and Stars with Isa as host Isa Nakazawa dives into birth charts of her celeb guests. This is just the start of a new wave of podcasting. Visit statefarm.com to find out how we can help prepare for your future. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Julian Fellow's new series, The Gilded Age, on HBO this spring fascinated so many viewers because of the glamorous, over-the-top drama of some of the period's most famous real-life characters, from Mrs. Astor to Stanford White to Ward McAllister. And it was pretty hard not to stay glued to the plotting and the planning of our social climbing couple, George and Bertha Russell, well, particularly Bertha, who acted an awful lot like robber baron Jay Gould and Alva Vanderbilt. And then the stories of Peggy Scott and her family, along with some of the downstairs staff, were revelations about just what really did happen in Gilded Age, New York. It seems that there was far more than we ever knew. The season left us wondering just what was going to happen to them all, and perhaps best of all, sent so many of us back to our history books, websites, and to news sources that most accurately shed light on the whole Gilded Age. But now, in the middle of the summer, aren't we all in a little bit of withdrawal? We decided to revisit the show and talk about some of our more lingering points of curiosity and interest. Today, I'm lucky and honored to have Tom Myers of the Bowery Boys join me for this special show to do just that. Tom was co-host with Turner Classic Movies' Alicia Malone of HBO's official Gilded Age podcast, which every week gave us the backstory and the inside story on particular moments in history and the real-life characters we saw in the show. And there was that really special treat I looked forward to each week. Each podcast featured in-depth live interviews with the cast and the creative team. I invite you all to go back and listen to those episodes now with all the details and explanations that Tom and Alicia shared along with the fantastic cast interviews. HBO's official podcast is a masterclass on the Gilded Age. So go pour a nice cup of tea or something stronger, and join Tom and me today for our own look back at the glitter and the gold. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every two weeks I take you behind the velvet ropes and behind the damask curtains to visit the worlds of America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Époque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. Today, we're back in the Gilded Age. I hear from so many listeners, it's their favorite period, and I'm joined right now, right here, across the table from me, by Tom Myers. Tom, along with Greg Young, are the Bowery Boys, and they have fascinated listeners now for over 15 years with their podcast on the history of New York. And Bowery Boys Media is the producer of my show, The Gilded Gentleman. So make sure you subscribe to the Bowery Boys History Podcast as well. Hi there, Tom. I am so glad you're joining me for this show. Both you and Greg joined me for our very first Gilded Gentleman episode way back when. Wow, that seems so long ago. I'm so you're so glad you're back here with me today. Carl, it is such a pleasure. It's an honor to be on the show with you on this sweltering hot summer day. And Tom, you and Greg just celebrated an incredible anniversary mm -hmm. of Bowery Boys History Podcast. Yeah, our 15th anniversary. Uh, we started the show back in 2007. So that's a lot of podcasts. We're, we're recording episode 393 
in just a couple of days. So, I think that's amazing. Who knew what a podcast even was back then, right? We you, hardly knew what a podcast <laughs> was. No, literally, I had podcasts for dummies. I had the book to help me figure it out. Well, you have refined the art now. There's no, certainly no question about that. <laughs> so in our show today, we are going to take a look at three sort of particular areas to really further dig into the Gilded Age. And we are so lucky to have the HBO series to help us do that. So first, Tom, I'm so excited to talk with you really about the Gilded Age overall and Mm -hmm. share some of our individual thoughts and our takes on it all. And then we're going to move into looking at the show itself with all of those overlapping plots and fictitious as well as characters based on real people. And lastly, this is going to be really interesting, we'll talk about what it was like to be a show insider and create and develop the official companion podcast to the show, and even what happened on set. But let's just (laughs) dig in. So Tom, flat out, my first question really is for us to talk about why do you think people are so fascinated by the Gilded Age? And by the Gilded Age, are we talking about the show or we're talking about the era? We're talking about the era in this particular case. So roughly 1872, mm-hmm. just before World War One breaks out, 1914. So you the know, era. And I, th- I think, well, first of all, it's wonderful to be here with you. And um, we recorded the very first episode of The Gilded Gentleman together at the Salma Gundy Club. And we kind of touched on some of this as well, right? The, the overarching themes of the Gilded Age and why people seem to be so drawn to it. And I think that there is... Correctly or incorrectly, a perception of glitz and glam. You know, it seems to be a time when big things were happening in the city and big fortunes were being made. And I think that there is a perception of sort of luxurious romance, a sort of like Edith Wharton treatment to the whole era that people really love to focus on. I think I, I agree. And I think what happens is, well, and Wharton was, of course, deeply critical of of all of it. There's mm-hmm. this sort of veneer that draws people in the balls and the dresses and the opulent homes. But then if you dig beneath it, as we talk about on both our shows, there was a mm-hmm. whole lot more going on. And we're going to talk about that. To me, when I think about it, it's, it's sort of like watching a train wreck because you can't really <laughs> believe that yeah. some of this is, is going on, but you can't, you know, how outrageous things got and also how dramatic things got in some of the, the crashes financially, et, et cetera. So I think people find themselves either turning their pages or just glued to a screen to see sort of what outrageous thing someone is going to do next because they're really off the guardrails. And there were so many outrageous things that actually did happen during that period. So it is a lot of fun, right, to talk about Mamie Fish or, you know, other other figures who were throwing outrageous parties or Mrs. Astor, et cetera. And we can get into all of that now. But I do feel like, you know, you just you you just mentioned that there's some kind of veneer that people are focused on. And I think that that is a real misconception, you know, that we look at the Gilded Age as if it is a golden age. And it was not called the Golden Age. It was called the Gilded Age, which means a very cheap, thin layer of gold. It's phony. And if you prick at it, it's going to break. There's, it's shallow. So this is a shallow period. It is hiding a lot of social unrest and a lot of problems right under its surface. But it looks pretty. It looks pretty if you stand back. It does look pretty, but we 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 are going underneath the surfaces here. Uh, one of the things I always think about too is that New York, really at the period, was was a relatively small place, and you had these overlapping worlds of this wealth and this just dehumanizing poverty very mm-hmm. close to each other. Yeah, and it was actually you know it was a period of. Ex- bloating growth as well. So it's a city that is transformed. I mean, the Gilded Age obviously is post-Civil War, it's 1870s up till the end of the 19th century. Some people take it all the way up until World War One. But if you just look at, you know, the decades before it started too, I mean, it's just, it's a city that is convulsing in convulsions, right? It is changing so rapidly every 10 years. The population is just expanding so quickly. And so much of that is fueled by the waves of immigrants who are coming into the city, making their homes here, and the industry that is just kind of like, (laughs) you know, that is growing like gangbusters, which was producing fabulous fortunes for a very few. And then over the course of this Gilded Age, New York would become undoubtedly the place that all the millionaires 
around the country needed to come and make a home base for themselves and, and be part of the party of millionaires that was happening here. So there's a lot going on during this period. Well, there certainly was. And I always think when I start myth busting a little bit about the period, <laughs> well, and say, you know, it's not just a ball at the Astors. It's, it's exactly what you said. It's this incredible, the infrastructure of, of not only New York, but of mm-hmm. modern America was being built at the time from the railroads to gas to steel, of course, electricity. And we saw, of course, saw a dramatic moment of that in the show, which we'll talk about, and the enormous building that was going on. So that's something I think people are either less aware of or don't think of right off the bat is that was going on too and, and was super important of course. And also great fortunes were being made off of some, so many of those aspects, right? The same railroads that were allowing people to move out west and that were a revolution then in the way that shipping was happening and the way that crops were getting to New York and et cetera. You know, Vanderbilt, people like Vanderbilt were domin- dominating those trades and, and amassing enormous fortunes. And that was also happening, Carl, because of the lack of regulation and by the permission of monopolies. Monopolies were just a way of, you know, it, it was a fact of life at the time. And no taxes. And, <laughs> and no taxes. It certainly made it easier to have a full staff in a huge, huge mansion if you weren't paying income tax. New York itself, this is an idea I'm really fascinated with. New York itself, you could actually say was a character in the show or in books about New York. So if we could go back to that world of of old New York in the 1870s, 1880s, are there places or buildings that that don't exist anymore that you would really like to see and spend time with? Do you have any favorites? I mean, so many, right? I I would love you know, one of the things that I, th- I feel like we romanticize is the the elevated railroads. I would love, starting in the 1870s and certainly into the 1880s, to hop aboard an elevated train and just he- head all over town and just see what New York looked like from up there. You know, we I, th- I think we forget today as we're buried in the subway, that as people moved around the city, they were also looking out and really watching sort of, you know, it's like want, the reason we like taking the bus today sometimes, it's just the bus on steroids. The thing actually moved, you know, and you were right up next to the second or the third floor of those apartment buildings. And so people really did look in and see domestic scenes playing out before their eyes. That's something that I think we really don't think about with our modern eyes, because as you just said, we take the subway and buses in New York City (laughs) all the time. Right. And we have our book in front of us. But at that time, that opened up the city. The idea of going from, you know, 50th Street down to Bowling Green was it was a revelation because otherwise it would have taken hours in a horse drawn, whatever it happened to be really important. Right. Instrumental in the development then of the Upper West Side, the Upper East Side, Harlem, the Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, everywhere, you know, because of those elevated trains. And then obviously once once the subway opened in 1904, that was just another game changer. Of those buildings, when I think about them, the two that I would love to see or spend time, of course, are related to the performing arts. One is the Academy of Music oh, yeah. on 14th Street and, and Irving Place. And we get a little bit of a sense of that in the in the show. It was New York's premier opera house until the Metropolitan Opera was, of course, built in 1883. Also, the second Madison Square Garden from 1890, which was the Stanford White, Moorish-designed yeah. extravaganza. I think that would have been an amazing building to spend time in. Even the first Madison Square Garden that went up in 1879, that would have been a very interesting one to to be in. And in the HBO show, The Gilded Age, it's funny because there are a number of scenes, well, one in particular, where Marion and Peggy go to Madison Square. You know, when we look back on the period, there are there are so many negative things that we could certainly talk about. But there were some positive things that I think are really interesting, too. One was really the beginning of philanthropy, mm. is a lot of these fortunes, yes, the money was being spent in, in wild and crazy ways. But there was this, this sense of charitable organizations to help the poor, to help infants to poor, you know, I mean, there really was that sense of, of philanthropy, which men and women got in, involved in. Also, it was this big cultural moment, because of course, New York was trying to copy Europe and all the great temples of theater and music then. So you had the beginning of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in the 1870s, the Museum of Natural History, and then, of course, the Great Opera House in the 1880s. So it was a real cultural moment then, too. Yeah. And those are obviously notable positives for the era that should not be overlooked. And, you know, I think it's important to remember that 
the millionaires who were here and millionaires who had moved to New York, like George and, and Bertha Russell on the show, they moved to New York because this is where they had to be, right, for George's business. And they were the sort of American, the new American aristocracy, or they were trying to join the aristocracy, the aristocracy at the time controlled by Mrs. Astor, Carolyn Astor, and as sort of the queen bee of society. America didn't have royalty, doesn't have royalty, right? We don't have an aristocracy. So at this period, they were defining for themselves who they thought the aristocracy was or what it was here. And that was those people with the most money and then who could put on airs and act in a certain way and then also be gracious and donate things as well to improve the daily life for everybody. I mean, I, more of that would come afterwards, right? especially when there were taxes and they could start writing things off. But in this era, you know, I mean, they were seeing themselves, I believe, as aristocrats. And we see, for example, Bertha Russell right off in the, in the beginning of the show, in the beginning of the series, contemplate how to rise in society. And one of the ways that she tries to get in is by joining a charity. And so there were these charities that were organized by women at the top realms of society and we see portrayed here that even they were petty in the ways that they went about letting the right people in or, you know, snubbing others. So so even charity, there's even an episode of the show called Charity Has Two Functions, which deals exactly with this sort of the doubles with the complicated nature here of charity. I mean, yes, it's helping people. In the, in the case of the show, it was orphans and um, uh, friendless women, I think that they said. Um, and at the same time, it was giving society, women, something to do, and also ways to sort of, you know, to network. I thought that was really interesting, too, because women really had very few options at the time, aside mm -hmm. from the balls and dinners and all the rest of it. So that was something I really found fascinating in the show is because it really shone a light on the world of these charitable organizations and these meetings and how certainly catty things mm -hmm. could get and difficult and certainly competitive. And, and we shouldn't discount, I certainly don't mean to discount the fact that some of these organizations did real good too, right? And and sure. they were they were actually women were tackling problems that were very profound during the same period, right? Especially the horrible living conditions of a majority of the residents of New York City, especially most of the immigrants who had just arrived. So living conditions were terrible and it was in many ways women who were were at the forefront of of helping reform that. And so we're gonna take a brief break and don't go too far. Tom and I will be back to make a return visit to the HBO series, The Gilded Age. And Tom, I can't wait to really take a deep dive into all of this. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Meet the next generation of podcast stars with SiriusXM's Listen Next program, presented by State Farm. As part of their mission to help voices be heard, State Farm teamed up with SiriusXM to uplift diverse and emerging creators. Tune in to Stars and Stars with Isa as host Isa Nakazawa dives into birth charts of her celeb guests. This is just the start of a new wave of podcasting. Visit statefarm.com to find out how we can help prepare for your future. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, and I'm here today with Tom Myers of the Barry Boys History Podcast and the producers of my show. And we're revisiting the HBO series, The Gilded Age, written and created by Julian Fellows, as we all patiently, as much as we can, wait for season two. So, Tom, let's get back here and let's get really specific and, and revisit the show. So each episode, was really tied to a major theme. And, and to me, it was kind of a crash course on the major elements of, of the period. So when you look back, I made a little list here. So oh, let's go through, let's see. The major theme seemed to be there was society of old New York versus the one that was developing, being fueled by the new money. We certainly saw that. Mm -hmm. And that raised the question of the theme of, well, who were the gatekeepers of the society? And then how did that change? Because, of course, it obviously did. Who kept you in and 
of course, who kept you out. Mm -hmm. Then there was, we talked a little bit about this before the break, but the rise of industry, the development of the railroads and gas, and even new forms of entertainment. I loved that episode that showed the new Magic Lantern show. That was new technology for the for the time, even though it was so simple. And electricity, too. And, of course, electricity. And one thing was certainly the development of, of the black middle class, which was enormously important, and the growth of, of other boroughs, not just Manhattan and Brooklyn. And I was so happy we got to see that. The show also looked at the evolving role of domestic servants and what their lives were really like. And then, as you just said, I think it's really almost a theme unto itself, the invention of electricity, because it really transformed. You could walk around at night now, which people don't think about. But you couldn't really before. I mean, certainly with the gaslight wasn't strong enough. And that changed the city and, of course, the world. And I guess I should also throw in here that the show really took a look at the society of Newport and what that mm-hmm. meant. And and certainly the strength of, of new money, it certainly couldn't be ignored. And that battle to enter society, we certainly saw the show down at the end between Birth and Mrs. Astor. So, wow, that's an awful lot. Tom, did <laughs> I get impressed. it all right? Did I miss, did I miss anything? <laughs> I'm, I'm very impressed, Carl. You have managed to, to cover, I think, most of the themes. Of course, then there's plot lines, right, that figure in here that um, make the thing really fun and string it all together. I mean, we've got multiple love stories going on. Most notably, we're following Marion Brooke as she moves into New York from, you know, off in the, in the countryside, basically moving to New York and living with her, her elderly aunts who are part firmly part of Knickerbocker, New York. But we are sort of like, Marion is sort of our guide to the city. She's bringing us in and she's probably the most relatable person for the audience because she's seen everything anew, right? She has these, she has an innocence to her. So, and she asks questions that nobody else is asking as well. Why are you doing this? Why won't you let this person in? Why not ask, you know, let her help you? That sort of thing. So, and then of course her her love story too, that her um, aunts who are now taking care of her are very concerned about. And it turns out they were rightly concerned about Um, her romantic situation. So, and then there's a lot of funny stuff that's going on. There's a dog named Pumpkin. There's, and then of course the drama of Mrs. Astor and as gatekeeper, Ward McAllister and Bertha Russell's big ball that she's about to throw or planning to throw. So there's a lot going on. Yes, I think that the main theme definitely, though, is old versus new, although it's more than just about money, right? It's also about old customs versus and manners versus new ones and the way that you decorate your house the old way versus the new way. It's about, you know, being flashy versus and flaunting your wealth as opposed to being more reserved about it. But as the series progresses, I think we see that actually those two worlds, the old world and the new world, they need each other. They need each other to survive. And it's something that Ward McAllister is pointing out to Carolyn Astor throughout the series. And ultimately, I think she realizes that, yes, she does need the Bertha Russells of the world in in order to remain relevant. I agree. One of the when you were talking about Marion, one of the things that I think is so interesting about that character is that, yes, we see through her eyes, but she also is able to see and participate in all the different layers of society. Yeah. There are really very few characters that can can do that, and, and that's why I think she's such an important, important character. Yeah, she can go everywhere, as can Tom Rakes, who, you know, that was a red flag for me. I was not sure why he would suddenly wind up, you know, in a skirmerhorn box at the Academy of Music so quickly. I mean, that guy was on the move. Yeah, that was a little curious, wasn't I? I wasn't sure about that. I know. Now, the show featured a number of real-life characters. I mentioned a few of them at the beginning, but I think one of the really most fun things is to work out who some of the characters were either based on partially or entirely. We certain fi- certainly find that in Edith Wharton's work. It's fascinating to figure out mm-hmm. who she's really talking about in The Age of Innocence or, or House of Mirth. So this time around, we've got Bertha and George. Who do you think? Well, okay, so I want to stand back here and say that on the official HBO podcast, Alicia and I had the great fortune of interviewing, you know, we would do half of the show where we'd talk about the history and the, the plot that we had just seen on the, on the episode. And then in the second half, we, we got to interview stars from the show and also like the heads of the production team. 
there had writers and directors and producers, and in fact, the creator, Julian Fellows, and, and writer um, himself. And so I did ask that question to Julian in our very first episode, you know, so George and Bertha, I mean, is it Alva Vanderbilt and Jay Gould, or is he kind of a Vanderbilt, or what's going on here? Because it seems so obvious, you know, Bertha is so obviously Alva in some ways, but not always, right? She's like not, she has some things in common with Alva, the way that she's protective of her daughter, the way that she's a social climber, etc. But she also, you know, has a different past. And she she wasn't a nobody in the same way that, that Bertha Russell is when she moves to New York. And she wasn't completely ignored. So it wasn't the same. Anyway, I asked Julian about this. And, and he said, look, he preferred to make complex characters that were sort of combinations of others and who also had elements that were completely, you know, invented by by him. So in the case of these two characters, I mean, I think that they are, they're a bit of a mix. I think she's definitely very heavy in the Alva, but he's not entirely Jay Gould either, right? You know what I think is the best part of all of this? First of all, if you're creating, you know, if you're writing it, you can make anybody whatever you you want. But it also makes us go back and look at the historical people and find out who they really were, right. whether they were exactly as they're portrayed uh, in some of these fictional characters. So I think it it does sort of provoke a, a, a questioning or an investigation of some of these. Yeah. I, in fact, I did a whole show, as you know, right. on Alva Vanderbilt, and it's been one of my most popular shows. Shows because I think people heard of that comparison with Bertha, because who doesn't love Bertha? And they wanted to find out, well, what was Alva really like? So I yeah. think there's a real benefit to that. But in the case of George, you know, there's so much Vanderbilt in him, too. I mean, George is is building uh, in one of the episodes. He's opening up a new station called Union Central Station. And I mean, there's just so many parallels to the Vanderbilts uh, that you can't overlook that. So I really think he's this kind of combination Jay Gould Vanderbilt persona. One of the fascinating characters, I think, is Gladys, their daughter, oh, because yeah. one of, of course, the famous stories of the Gilded Age is the marriage of, of Alva's daughter, Consuelo, to the Duke of Marlborough. And it, boy, it seems like Gladys is going in that direction. We'll have to see. <laughs> but I just think Bertha's got a, a Duke or somebody picked out for her. And the way that George sent away Archie, you know, who was Gladys's, Gladys's romantic pick, if you'll recall, he just like basically forces Archie away, you know, after what looked like a rather uncomfortable dinner party. Like he just put, basically pushes him out and ruins his daughter's life. You know? I really didn't like that. No, that Come was, on, George. That was that rough. was awful. That was rough. Oh, Gladys will get she'll get revenge somehow. I just know she will. I don't <laughs> know. So one character I was really fascinated with because it led me on a search to someone that I really didn't know much at all. And so the fictitious character was Sylvia Chamberlain, mm. and who's interesting in and of her herself, but based supposedly on Arabella Huntington. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and what you discovered about that? Because Sylvia's interesting, but Arabella's really interesting, too. Right. In the case of Mrs. Chamberlain, I mean, first of all, she always has the best hats. We see her, you know, with all kinds of feather concoctions off the top of her hat. And she's the most intriguing and she has the, the best expression on her face. There's a scene where she comes up to Peggy and Marion uh, in Bloomingdale's. There's a scene at the Charity Bazaar, and actually Marion then does sort of break rank and social rules and become friends with Mrs. Chamberlain, which I think we obviously applaud as the audience. We're happy to see these two. Mrs. Chamberlain is an outcast, you know, and there are elements of her life that very closely resemble as well the life of Arabella Huntington, who married very well and also had an incredible art collection. As you'll recall in the series, we see Mrs. Chamberlain's art collection. I mean, it's like a wing at the Met. She was a great, uh, well, um, Arabella Huntington, a great art philanthropist. And I think I want to do a show on this, on the great female art philanthropists of the era, because there were actually several of them. Yes. Um, Arabella was, was one of them. But. And, her, and her art, of course, lives on today in California at the Huntington. Absolutely. So that that was a really interesting portrayal for me because it sent me off uh, discovering some things that I certainly didn't know. So 
and again, it's another example of echoing a real life character, but not being sort of completely bound to to accuracy, right? She, he was not, Julian Fellows did not create a character named Arabella Huntington and instead decided to come up with Sylvia Chamberlain, who then could be much more interesting and do what this show needed her to do. On the flip side, you know, there are real characters, uh, real people who were portrayed. You've mentioned several of them. Of course, Carolyn Astor and Ward McAllister and, and even Stanford White. In the interview that I did with Julian Fellows, I asked about this and he said, look, when you are portraying somebody like Carolyn Astor, you're unfortunately locked into what they really did in their lives. And, you know, there will be people like you and I, Carl, who then follow up and say, nah, I mean, that was really good, except, you know, Carolyn Astor really didn't have pheasant that night for dinner because I've got the menus. You know, that's not what he wanted to do here. That That is very restrictive then, you know, and and so it is more liberating, I think, to then create these sort of amalgams, these these personas um, that could really do whatever the show needed them to do. I completely agree. Well, that's one of the reasons, and you and I talked about this really early on, why I did a show on Ward McAllister, because Mm -hmm. he was a complicated figure. He was a lesser known, the details of his life, lesser, lesser known, enormously influential. Mrs. Astor really needed him Mm -hmm. until she didn't. So check, check, check. Right. So I wanted to do a show that really exposed him sort of and his background he he was ultimately not that likable i think he would right. have been difficult to sit next to at a dinner party at least he would have known which knife to use and he would have told you which knife you had to use too right <laughs> he's very pompous so what plot lines are you most excited about to see go on or expand in season two what are you waiting for the finale certainly left us with a number of different cliffhangers We're wondering, of course, where Peggy's going to go next. Where are she and her mother, portrayed by Audra McDonald? Where are they headed out? Because they're on the move. They're going off. We find out something. I don't want to give away too many spoilers if people haven't gotten all the way through the final episode. But let's say there's a major revelation in Peggy's life, and she is now heading off to follow up on that. And then we're also left with the question of Bertha. Where where does she stand now that in the final scene, it seems that she has made up in some ways or made some kind of an alliance with Mrs. Astor. So what does that really mean and what does that look like? And then, of course, the main love story that we've all been following throughout the series. You know, what are we to make of Marion in the city at this point? And I mean, does she not have the most eligible bachelor just like batting his eyes across the street at her? I think she does. I do, too. So let's see where that goes. Fascinated. <laughs> now, of all the, mo- we talked a lot about some of the major characters, Bertha and George, and even Agnes and Mrs. Astor, but there are so many minor characters, both mm. real, uh, based on real life people, and, and fictional, that are in this series. That, to me, was one of the most enjoyable parts of it, is, is following some of these minor characters and wondering oh, what yeah. was going to happen. So who are your favorites? I'll tell you mine. Who are yours? Well, Mrs. Chamberlain, obviously, hands down. And I, I loved the maid Turner. I mean, she could steal a scene. You know, every time she, you needed her in some ways to do outrageous things. You needed her to sneak into George's bedroom and you're like, oh no, she's not. Oh, she is not getting into bed with him. Oh yes, she just did. And you know, and it made, it made great TV. Gotta say, what, what about you? Who are your favorites? Oh, Mamie Fish. Oh, of course. I I just want to do a show on Mamie Fish. She was a contender trying to topple Mrs. Astor Mm -hmm. as as the queen of society. And she just did some really outrageous things at at dinner parties. Her her husband was the the very well-known Stuyvesant Fish. He was a banker and he was actually the president of the Illinois Central Railroad. So a lot of of money. But what I love about Mamie Fish, and we only get little glimpses of in, of her I hope there's going to be a plot line with her because in a way she didn't really care she she had the money mm-hmm. and she was willing to do these outrageous things and people would come to her because it was fun yeah you know so she I, was kind of taking a sledgehammer right to the rules of the time yes and she could get away get away with it because she was from Knickerbocker society 
And, you know, she was in many ways doing what Bertha was doing. And Bertha was actually adhering more closely to the rules. But Bertha was trying to get in. Mamie was already in and she was making a mess of things and having fun. It's just fun to watch her. I can't wait. I also love young Jack, the footman Uh, at the Van Rines. I think we got some insight into his life, tragically, sadly, I should say. But that was interesting. And I have to say... I love Bannister in church. I just want to know more backstory. <laughs> backstory on the butlers, you know, because very different, but yeah. but a lot of fun. So those were some of my favorites. And I'm also glad that this show took us into new places. You know, you mentioned Peggy and the fact that um, we were really exposed in a way, brought into this plot line that is about uh, the black elite, especially those living in Brooklyn at the time. And it raised really, you know, this portrayal raised a lot of really important questions. And we saw them play out in the show, right, as Marion shows up with, <laughs> disastrously shows up unannounced or uninvited to their house, bringing along a bag that had some old shoes in it that she seemed to think that perhaps Peggy could use, possibly, only to be gobsmacked when confronted with the fact that Peggy was actually from a very well-off family. Thank you very much. And why did she not know this? And... And really, I thought that this was an amazing moment. I I was so excited when this happened, when I saw this episode, and I saw it back in December, but I was so excited to see this, and I just, I almost jumped for joy because I felt like the creators of this were able to kind of pull a move, not just on Marion, but in some ways on some parts of the audience as well. I mean, I'm sure that there were many people who were equally surprised to see, you know, that that Pe- that maybe hadn't been following the clues that Peggy actually is very well off. It was there the whole time, but maybe we didn't see it. And why didn't we see it? And then the bigger question, why didn't, why haven't we heard about the even existence of a black elite at the time during the Gilded Age? And I think that that raises important questions about who's telling the story and who are the people who are the gatekeepers to history and why are they always focused on the same white, rich story. And so I think it's very important that the show went into this storyline. And we, on on the podcast, we devote an entire episode to, to discussing this one, too. It's really important. Oh, Tom, I, I so agree. And I think if there is one single revelation that came out of all of it, it's that. Well, it's two things. It's it's uncovering that story and also, as you said, asking the question, why didn't we know about this? Um, but there has been some writing. Not, is that, am I correct about that, which, which this ha- was based on? Or there has been some writing out there? Yes. As inspiration for this plotline, I think that the writers leaned into the work that was done by Carla Peterson in her book, Black Gotham. It's an exploration of her family's life as part of Brooklyn's Black Elite. So, Tom, from the technical aspect of of just creating the show Mm. and creating these images and places that we saw, what impressed you the most about that? I mean, all of it, right? I mean, it was was magical that this team of people, an enormous team of people and artists, were able to basically recreate the Gilded Age, this world, this perhaps rarefied world, although we did go into the Tenement District, we did go, you know, other places, but that this world was brought back to life only could happen, not just because of, obviously, the wonderful writing, but because of the sets and the locations that were scouted out, the costumes, the art direction, all the post-production work, the music, the score that went with the whole thing. I mean, it took an army a very talented people to transport us into that world. And in our podcast, in the HBO's official Gilded Age podcast, Alicia and I were so fortunate enough to be able to interview so many of those people. On each episode, we talked to um, an actor and a member of the uh, production team. So Julian Fellows, and we were able to talk to these artists about how they recreated this world and, Carl, how they did it at like the height of COVID. I mean, that's the other thing that we cannot overlook here is that they started production on this show right before COVID hit. 
and then had to kind of fall. They weren't in a dormant state, but they couldn't. There was a period where they they had some time to rework some things. And actually, that's when a lot of really interesting things happened. That's when, as we found out on the show, uh, Dr. Erica Dunbar was brought in to help out with the Peggy story. That's when, you know, things like that happen. But even then, when they restarted shooting, the fact that they were doing it, you know, mostly masked, except for when the cameras came right out, there were extreme limits placed on the number of people who were allowed on set. And that included the production team and and the tech team, but also the actors. So they had to make it look like it was a New York street scene full of people, even though they were really limited by the number of people who they could actually have on the set. You know, there are all of these aspects of creating that show that that were already complicated enough, and then they got a pandemic slapped on top of it. But it looked great. <laughs> it looked you know? it looked amazing. So, Tom, you had this super special ringside seat for, for all of this as co-host of the uh, official Gilded Age podcast. So I'm really curious how that experience sort of changed your view of the Gilded Age uh, for doing the show. I mean, after all, you and Greg have done the Barry Boys History Podcast for so many years, and you've done many, many, many episodes of the Gilded Age and have have dug into so many different aspects of it. Was there anything that really deepened your your interest or your understanding as a result of what you did? I would say that you know, I I got really deep into the world of the Vanderbilts and then also because of them into their sort of favorite architect, Richard Morris Hunt. And uh, so I kind of fell down a Richard Morris Hunt well there for a while. Because of this, Greg and I then produced a show called Architect of the Gilded Age, The Life of Richard Morris Hunt. So that is definitely one thing. I think also maybe an appreciation for just all of the correspondence, the social rules, the letters and notes and place settings and all the rules that really kind of, you know, guided and restricted this world in so many ways. And also an appreciation for the world of Newport. I had not really spent much time up there. And so I headed up in order to to research the Newport parts of the show, I went up and and took in Newport. It was very icy. It was very cool. But walking around the breakers, walking around, you know, just visiting so many of these locations was pretty incredible. And locations in Newport, by the way, that were used for all kinds of places, right? Uh, one of the most incredible aspects of the show is that they shot things in Newport that were not supposed to be or that were not in Newport on the show. So uh, Newport was a stand-in for many other places. And in fact, Consuela's bedroom at uh, the Marble House was the real Marble House. And the real Consuela's bedroom is George's bedroom that we see at the Russell House. So lots of things like that took place. And and we got into those in an episode with the location scout, Lori Pitkiss, and with many of the others. I mean, they were constantly playing a game of location jigsaw puzzle, location bingo, you know, where it's like <laughs> putting this show together meant like walking out of one mansion in Newport and onto a set in another place and then into another mansion. And it's all supposed to look like it's one place. And the Russell's ballroom really was the breakers, right? Am I it, right about the, that? <laughs> it's the music room at the breakers. Yeah, it's incredible when you actually visit the music room and you look at it and you say, how did they shoot this to make it look like it was that big, you know, that 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 very large room? And in fact, I mean, it's a decent sized room. Don't, don't get me wrong. But I think your eyes sort of play tricks on you when you see it, not knowing that it's that that room at the breakers. You know, one of the things that I think is so important in understanding history, aside from everything we read and hear and all of that, it's to actually spend time in some of these physical spaces of what exists now, either historic homes or mansions or whatever it is, because there's really something about understanding those spatial relationships of of what it felt like. And Mm -hmm. I think that... To me, that always gives me a deeper insight into the history and how people related to each other. Sometimes it's very small and cramped. Sometimes yeah. it's much more grand. And and you'll never get that in a book, right? No, no. And the length that they went to to recreate those spaces is really notable. The fact that, you know, out on Long Island, they build a set. They have an entire lot, a back lot, behind the Museum of American Armor. And if you go on Google Maps and just look it up in Beth Page, you can hit satellite view and you'll see the intersection of 61st and 5th that they recreated with the Russell House and the Van Rhyne and a strip of Central Park and a few blocks beyond it. I mean, it's 
incredible that they actually built those exteriors. And you can even see some green screens in there. And then, you know, they did obviously a lot in studio as well, but that they also shot in these mansions up in Newport constantly. You know, they were regularly up there. So, Tom, I was so impressed listening to you on every episode of the amount of research that you clearly had to do. How did you prepare for each episode? Where did you start? Well, I started by watching the show over and over and over and took lots of notes. Alicia and I were given the the show to watch back in December. So we had a head start. And then she and I would talk about it quite a bit. And we also had a wonderful production team, which included Grant and May and Trey, and then others at HBO and Warner Media who helped with all of the bookings. And, you know, it was it was a lot of work to put this show together. But our team, our core team, spent a lot of time talking through the episode and figuring out what was, you know, what were the most important things to to focus on. Because in the podcast itself, the first half of the show had to not only sort of recap what happened on the show, but also explain and give context to what was going on in New York at the time and put it right sort of in in correct historical context. So that was a lot to cover in the first half of the show. And then and then we had to prepare for the interviews as well. And those interviews, by the way, I was, you know, those were really led by my partner, Alicia Malone from TCM, Turner Classic Movies, who has such great experience interviewing people. And so she really brought those skills to the actors and the members of the production team. And, you know, by the end, I think we had all learned so much about the era and we had learned so much from the people who had created the show and who had acted in the show. The actors, they did so much work. They were all reading Wharton. They were all... (laughs) As they should. Yes. I mean, it's it's amazing. You know, Cynthia Nixon was talking about reading Age of Innocence, as was Louisa Jacobson. It's like they were all... I mean, Christine Baranski was reading a, a, a biography on the Livingston family that she got from the Society Library. Like, everybody was seriously doing their homework. One of the things that I so loved as this process was going on for you were the conversations that you and I would have periodically about resources and books and trading recommendations. I think for our listeners, let's share a couple of our very favorite <laughs> books on the Gilded Age. What, what oh. I'll tell you mine. You tell me yours. Yeah, you well, ahead. and I will say, yes, we were, there were some panicked phone calls too. I mean, I could not discuss the plot with you, right. as you'll recall. I'd been sworn to secrecy and that made things also really funny with my my Bowery Boys co-host, um, Greg Young, <laughs> who, by the way, got to stand back here and give additional credit where it's due. That guy, Greg kept that show going for four months while I was living in this world of HBO glitz and glamour. He really kept the Bowery Boys running. So I thank him from the bottom of my heart for that. I would call you in a panic, a sort of Gilded Age frenzy sometime and say like, wait a second. I've been saying valet this whole time. Is it valet? Because I think you pronounced it valet. There's this like world that we all know, you know, V-A-L-E-T is pronounced, I mean, we would say valet. But for whatever reason, it seems at the time people were saying valet. You're valet. And the, Brit- and the British... Uh, and the British, of right, course, and and, right. And which so they were all imitating. They were imitating, so, yeah, right. Yeah. But it's hard to look at that word and say valet. You just feel, you know, and people would even email and say, why are you saying valet? The word's valet, you know? So there were things like that. I think there was some business around, you know, the real Mrs. Astor and the 400 and, you know, the myth around that being the number who could fit into her ballroom, et cetera. You know, there, were, there were cold sweats aplenty. I remember like <laughs> calling you and being like, Wait a second. Did Carolyn Astor get out of her car and when she actually produced the invitation to her ball to Alva? Or did she just hand it over to, you know? Or was so, the footman involved? Yes, it got very detailed. Because <laughs> you see conflicting accounts. You know, there are so course, many conflicting absolutely. accounts. So for listeners, I, I made a little list of my some of my favorite resources for the Gilded Age. And Tom, I know you, you and I share yes. very much a dedication and passion for a couple of them. First of all, I would certainly say The Gilded Age in New York, 1870 to 1910. That was written by Esther Crane, who has been a guest on the show. This is a really comprehensive book and gorgeously illustrated. A coffee table book. It really is. So I always say if you need only one book of The Gilded Age, I would certainly look at that one. 
The second one is one, Tom, I know you I, and I- I know what you're going to say. You know, you're looking a, at me. A Season of Splendor, The Court of Mrs. Astor in Gilded Age, New York by Greg King. Mm. I, I love that book. And you know, there are chapters on balls, there are chapters on dinners, there are chapters on servants, there are yeah. chapters on all different aspects of it, and it breaks it down. That's why, why do you love it? It's so helpful. I mean, he well, first of all, he's a fabulous writer and researcher, and it's just- it's so engaging. And as you say, yeah, it's broken down by topic. I mean, that's such a fun book. A contemporary book from the Gilded Age that I recommend is Elizabeth Drexel Lair's King Lair and the Gilded Age. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Drexel Lair, who was a member of the Gilded Age Society and who ended up marrying another amazing figure who might come into the series, who knows, at some point, named Harry Lear, who was a, a, with Mamie Fish, a kind of troublemaker and a fun maker would then go on to write basically a tell-all. And what you find, once you read that, you realize that her book, King Lara and the Gilded Age, is kind of the primary source for many other people who would write about the era. I mean, so many anecdotes that we read about Mamie Fish and about other parties and whatever come from her firsthand accounts that she put in that biography. So it's a fabulous book. I also loved Arthur Vanderbilt's Fortune's Children, which is a story of the Vanderbilt family written by a Vanderbilt, which would again happen again decades later and, and very recently with Anderson Cooper, his, his recent book about the Vanderbilt family, his biography of the Vanderbilt family and his experience and with his mother, published very recently, named appropriately enough Vanderbilt, is a really great read. And with that, Tom, oh my gosh, there's so much we could keep talking about, but I think we've I think we've covered a lot today in the show, and we're just going to have to wait for season two to see where all this leads. I can't wait to have another conversation with you after that. It is always great to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Carl. It's been a real pleasure. And don't forget to subscribe to the Bowery Boys History Podcast if you aren't listening already. It's where it all began. And don't forget to subscribe to HBO's official Gilded Age podcast. And I invite my listeners to become patrons of The Gilded Gentleman on patreon.com slash The Gilded Gentleman. Your support truly helps me continue to produce the show, and you'll have access to bonus content and advance notices of my Gilded goings-on and so much more. So I'll see you soon. After all, what's life without a little glint of gold? Meet the next generation of podcast stars with SiriusXM's Listen Next program, presented by State Farm. As part of their mission to help voices be heard, State Farm teamed up with SiriusXM to uplift diverse and emerging creators. Tune in to Stars and Stars with Issa as host Issa Nakazawa dives into birth charts of her celeb guests. This is just the start of a new wave of podcasting. Visit statefarm.com to find out how we can help prepare for your future. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.